Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. Tonight I'm kicking off season three of Serial Nightmare, a Halloween series that I do every year for the month of October. Everything I release this month will either be Halloween related or more on the spooky side, but of course always true crime. This is one of the strangest stories that I think I've ever covered, and I feel like I say that a lot, but this story is a total mystery to me. Cindy James was a 44-year-old woman from the Vancouver, BC area. She lived a very troubled and difficult life, and allegedly she was plagued the majority of it by a stalker who simply wouldn't leave her alone. Over a seven-year period, she would be harassed by an unknown individual, leading to more than 100 police reports of stalking. They would call her to threaten her, or just breathe into the phone until she hung up in a panic. They would lurk around every corner of her home at night, even going as far as to cut her phone lines. Authorities were puzzled by the lack of evidence, and many people believed that Cindy was actually making up the whole thing for attention. But everything would come to a head when Cindy disappeared in May of 1989. Just two weeks later, her body would be found at an abandoned house, battered, bruised, and bound. In what looked like an apparent homicide, the police would take a different approach to their investigation. They believed that this was all a part of Cindy's mental health issues, and she had likely unalived herself, making it appear like a murder, but Cindy's family firmly believed that she had finally been killed by her longtime stalker and a murderer was allowed to walk free. We're going to walk through all of the details of this unsolved case, the background, the evidence, timeline, and what led the coroner to listing Cindy James' cause of death as an unknown event. Even though I'm a Canadian who is obsessed with all things true crime, I had never heard of this case. Though this story has appeared on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, and I will absolutely need to hunt down the footage after this. And it's no wonder why the show would pick this case up. In my opinion, it could be another instance of what was probably a murder, yet the police have dismissed it as not being criminal. But I'd love to know what you think after you hear all of the details. Cindy was born on June 12, 1944, in beautiful British Columbia, Canada, to her father Otto, who was a retired colonel with the Canadian Forces, and her mother Tilly, who was a stay-at-home mom to Cindy and her five siblings. 
From everything that I have read, it appears that they were your typical middle-class family living in the suburbs of Vancouver. Cindy was known for having a very kind, sincere, and warm personality, so it was no surprise to anyone when she decided to become a nurse when she grew up. While in nursing school, she would meet her husband, Roy Makepeace, who was working as a psychiatrist and was 20 years older than her. It was a very quick romance, with the couple getting married just five months into dating. Even though Cindy and Roy had a very large age gap between them, they had a lot in common, especially when it came to their desire to help others. Roy had his psychiatric practice, and Cindy enjoyed working at the Blenheim House, which was a day treatment center for preschool-aged children who had behavioral and emotional problems. Even though Cindy absolutely loved children, the couple would have none of their own. And in fact, with their busy work schedules, it wasn't long before the marriage became tumultuous. In July of 1982, while Cindy was working as a nurse at the Richmond General Hospital, she decided to separate from Roy after 16 years of marriage. She found her own place to live, and she was really excited to have some independence. Though it was short-lived, because three months later is when the nightmare would begin. And before you automatically jump ahead and say, obviously the ex-husband did it, you're going to want to hear the full story. The pair continued to date while they maintained their separation, and reportedly they were really trying to work it out between them to avoid a divorce. But the weird events to follow would make things really difficult. It started with those strange phone calls from a voice that Cindy said that she did not recognize. Now this was back in the 80s, so it was a lot more complicated to try to trace who was calling. Sometimes the person on the other end of the line would whisper her name, Cindy, and sometimes they would stay completely silent other than their heavy breath on the other end of the line. This was the first time that Cindy had ever lived on her own, and so she was terrified. When the mysterious phone calls kept coming, she decided to call the police right away. A report was made with the Vancouver Police Department, but the calls kept coming and over the next few days, things really began to escalate. Cindy would say that she had heard someone attempting to open her back door, but they ran off when she went to look. Then she reported that someone had thrown a giant rock through her window. The following week, she alleged that someone had entered her home while she was away and slashed her pillowcase. Nothing else was damaged or taken, and she said she only noticed the slash pillowcase when she went to bed that evening and had pulled up the sheets. This time, she demands that a police officer is dispatched to have a look at her home and document any evidence, because like I said, she's terrified. Officer Pat McBride from the Vancouver Police Department responds to the call and takes the report. He records everything that Cindy has reported, and he appears to be empathetic to her situation. He also takes down information regarding her husband, Roy, because as us true crime enthusiasts know, it's usually the husband, especially if there's a separation and possibly impending divorce. Cindy refused to believe that Roy would ever do such a thing. The two were still seeing each other, and in fact, he was the one that had actually told her to call the police after she found her pillowcase slashed. At the time, there wasn't really anything that the police could do other than to tell her to be diligent and to call 911 if she had any more issues. She would have many more issues with 
things just seeming to get worse by the day. The random phone calls continued, and now Cindy felt like whoever was behind them was also watching her. She reported one call where, after hanging up the phone, she closed the blinds for privacy, only to have the creepy caller phone back to tell her that there was no use in her hiding because he knew that she was in her living room. Truthfully, I'd probably be moving the hell out of my home after that point, after getting a phone call like that, but Cindy tried to stick it out. Over the next several months, Cindy would say that she heard people lurking outside of her home, trying to open windows and doors. She said that there was a strange note left on her porch that had been created using those cutout letters from a magazine, like those ransom notes that you see in movies. She also said that her phone line had been cut, her outside lights had been broken, her dog had been attacked, and there were three dead cats left outside of her home, all in the span of just three short months. Cindy would continue to call the police to report how she was being terrorized in her own home, and Officer Pat McBride was always the one to respond, meaning they ended up spending quite a bit of time together with Pat even installing deadbolt locks on Cindy's doors as a personal favor to her. In a strange turn of events, Cindy and Pat began dating, and he even moved into the home. This, again, all happened within a matter of weeks, and obviously, it's not very professional for an officer to start dating one of the victims that he's helping. But I'm going to guess that Cindy felt much more comfortable having him there. And I would also guess that Cindy's husband, Roy, wasn't all that happy with the arrangement, particularly because the couple were supposed to be dating and working things out. Fortunately for Roy, the relationship between Cindy and Officer Pat McBride was very short-lived, and Pat would move out of the home, though not before there would be an incident between the two men. Pat was now living at Cindy's house, and he would say he discovered Roy in the alleyway behind the house with two guns in his possession. When Pat asked Roy what the hell he was doing, he said that he was just providing surveillance and protection for Cindy because of all of the stalking that was happening. So was Roy really just watching out for Cindy's safety, or was he caught in the act of stalking her home? We don't know. Again, over the course of the next few months, things escalated. Cindy would allegedly receive more strange phone calls of heavy breathing. She would receive more menacing notes, including one that said, Soon, Cindy. And she would find a picture of a corpse that had been cut out of a book and placed under the windshield wiper of her vehicle. She would also allegedly have her phone line cut again in five different places, but authorities were clueless as to who was behind it all. There wasn't really any evidence, clues, or tips to point to an individual who was stalking her. Actually, there wasn't really any evidence at all that she was even being stalked, only Cindy's claims. Cindy and Pat would break up, and Pat would move out of the home, but the harassment would continue. Cindy asks her telephone company to install a wiretap on her line so that they can trace where the hell the calls are coming from. Unfortunately, because of how short these calls were, there wasn't any valuable information garnered. A few of the calls were traced to the outer Vancouver area, but nothing more specific than that. Cindy reports that she continues to receive threatening letters and really disturbing photos of dead bodies on her car and on the porch of her home. 
And then the first physical incident happens. On January 27th, 1983, Cindy's friend, a woman named Agnes Woodstock, stopped by for a visit. Instead, she was horrified to find Cindy lying on the floor of her garage, bleeding and with a black nylon stocking tied around her neck. Agnes helps Cindy up while she calls 911. According to Cindy, she was at home when she heard a knock at her back door. When she went to answer the door, there was a man standing there who grabbed her and dragged her out to the garage where there was an accomplice waiting. The two men attacked her, with one slashing at her with something sharp while wrapping the stocking around her neck, choking her. Cindy tried to fight back, but she passed out from being choked. She only regained consciousness when her friend Agnes showed up and began to help her. She didn't remember exactly what the two men had done to her, but she said she remembered possibly being essayed with the knife, and she had over a dozen cuts to her hands, her arms, and her legs. I love to travel. From the bustling city of Tokyo to the beaches of Thailand, there's nothing I enjoy more than getting the chance to see the world and experience different cultures firsthand. But the language barrier, it can be an issue. Sure, you can use an app on your phone, but things often get lost in translation. I truly believe that learning at least some of the language of the land that you're visiting is the first step to ensuring a smooth and meaningful experience. That's why I'm excited about Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language that you want to learn. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Japanese, Spanish, German, Korean, Italian, and more. Learning a new language can be tough especially with all of the different nuances. But Rosetta Stone is designed to help you speak like a local, so you'll feel confident in what you're saying. I don't know how many times I've been traveling to a new country and struggled to get my point across just because I wasn't properly pronouncing something that I thought I knew, which is why I love Rosetta Stone's built-in true accent feature, which helps you master your accent. They also have convenient desktop and app options so you can learn on the go. Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership includes all 25 languages. So once you're finished learning one language, you can start on another. Whether you're an avid traveler like me or just want to impress your friends with a new skill, it's a steal of a deal at 50% off. That's right. 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. At this point, the police were actually skeptical about her story. The wounds that she sustained were mostly shallow and superficial, and there was no evidence of her being sexually assaulted with a knife. Cindy was asked to take a polygraph test before the investigation moved forward, and she failed. 
twice. Of course, this would be a red flag for the police, an indication that maybe she wasn't being fully truthful, though lie detector tests are not 100% and obviously can't be used in court, so do with that information what you will. Cindy had an explanation for the failed lie detector tests. She said that she was too afraid to tell the full truth because she had actually recognized one of the men who attacked her and she was terrified that he was going to come back and try to kill her or her family next if she told the police his identity. The police, on the other hand, were skeptical of this answer. Now, Cindy decided that she couldn't stay in that house, so she moves back into her marital home for a bit, while her husband, Roy, finds another place to stay. The two are still not committed to fully repairing their marriage. Because of the attacks, Cindy is able to claim $4,250 from the criminal injury section of the Workers' Compensation Board, which, to be fair, actually isn't a ton of money, and she was a nurse. She had a decent job, so it's not a ton of money to get. Even back in their marital home, the calls continued. Cindy would decide to move again in the spring in an attempt to get away from whoever was harassing her. But the calls continued, and Cindy would move yet again. This would be the fourth time she had to move in less than a year, and she would say that throughout each point of living in a different house, whoever was watching her continued to call and leave those threatening letters on her doorstep. Things would escalate again in the fall when Cindy began to find dead cats hanging from trees in her yard. They appeared to be strangled, and one was accompanied by a note that said, you're next. She continues to file a report with the police with each incident, but she says she doesn't believe her husband is the one behind these events, even though he is the number one suspect that police are looking at. She didn't really think the police were taking her all that seriously or looking where they should be, so Cindy hires a private investigator named Ozzy Caban. Ozzy would become a key witness to what was happening to Cindy. He decided to buy her a two-way radio so that they could better keep in touch. Ozzy thought that maybe he would even be able to catch the perpetrator in the act. And he almost did. Once you're done listening to Serial Napper, I have a true crime podcast recommendation that I know you're going to love. Check out Among the Dirt and Trees, a true crime show with a spooky twist where the crimes happen in the woods. Did I catch your attention? I knew I would. The host, Brianne, has 150 episodes for you to enjoy. So grab a coffee and a blanket, maybe turn on the lights so that you don't get too creeped out and have a listen. Over the weekend, I enjoyed their latest episode, The Haunted Forest, Tales of Woodland Terror. Woof. I knew there was a reason I don't go for hikes. I mean, beyond the fact that I die five minutes in from exhaustion. Either way, you're going to want to give this a try. You can find episodes of Among the Dirt and Trees on Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now back to our story. On January 30th, 1984, around 6 p.m. in the early evening, Cindy calls Ozzy on the two-way, pleading for his help. Ozzy responds immediately, and it takes him about 15 minutes to get over to her home and kick in the door, where he finds Cindy lying on the floor with a knife wound to her hand and another strange note beside her that read, Now you must die. See you next Tuesday if you get my drift. 
Just like with the first physical attack, there was a black nylon stocking wound tightly around her neck. Cindy was unconscious when he found her, and she would say that she didn't remember anything about the incident. She would have a head injury from being hit with an object, and there was a needle mark on her arm as if she had been drugged. But a toxicology report would reveal that she had no drugs in her system. When the police arrive at Cindy's home to document any evidence of the attack, they take note of a few important things, namely the fact that there did not appear to be any forced entry. So how did the individual get in? Cindy was known to always ensure her doors and windows were locked. After one attack, Royal Canadian Mounted Police tape recorded their questioning of Cindy. This is an actual excerpt from that interview. They thought if anyone would go through this much effort to stalk her, scare her, and attack her, I mean, it had to be her husband, Roy. There wasn't anyone else affiliated with her that would have that strong of a motive. But Roy would say that he had no idea who was stalking Cindy, and he had a solid alibi for most of the bigger events, like the physical attacks on Cindy. When he was questioned by the police, he does offer up an alternative theory and a suspect. He proposes that maybe it's someone affiliated with Cindy's job. Remember, Cindy had worked with troubled children who came from difficult backgrounds. Maybe it was someone that she had previously worked with, or maybe it was one of their family members. Police agreed to look into it, but they really were baffled by how this continued to go on for so long. It was so unusual for a stalker to be so brazen in these repeated attacks. During the summer of 1984, there were more attacks in Cindy's home, surprise, surprise, including one incident where Cindy arrived home to find her back door open. Inside the house, her dog had been beaten and tied to a table with a rope that was similar to the rope used to hang the cats. There was also a very explicit birthday note found in her kitchen and a cigarette butt in the ashtray that came from a brand that Cindy did not smoke. This is very elaborate, so there are really two trains of thought here. Either someone really hates Cindy to the point of being completely dedicated to making her life hell and really just not afraid to get caught, or Cindy is so mentally unwell that she's hurting herself and her dog and other animals just to prove a point. Either way, it's disturbing, and people around Cindy, her family, her friends, her coworkers, they all began to notice that her demeanor changed. She looked really tired and stressed out all of the time. She began to lose a ton of weight from not eating. She definitely was not acting like her usual self. The local police department was also fatigued. They had spent so much time, energy, resources, and money monitoring the situation. They had investigated every tip, lead, and angle that they could. They had officers surveilling the area around Cindy's different homes, and yet they still had no idea who was behind it. And then in July, Cindy would report that she had been abducted by a stranger. She awakes on the side of the road with no idea where she is, and then she stumbles over to a stranger's home to get help. She had that same black nylon stocking wrapped around her neck and needle marks on her arm. 
She said that the last thing she remembered was being stopped on the street by a bearded man and a blonde woman who were in a dark green van. According to Cindy, they asked her for directions, and she didn't remember anything after that point until she woke up in the ditch. Again, there were no drugs found in her system, despite the fact that she had those needle marks on her arm. The private investigator that she had hired has an idea that he wants her to try at this point. Hypnosis. Perhaps she is suppressing information from her memory, and hypnosis would help to dig up those details. So she undergoes hypnosis a few different times, and she says a few interesting things. In one session, she says that she once witnessed a double murder, but she provides no other details, and then after, she doesn't remember ever saying it once she woke up. In another session, she claims that her former husband, Ron, killed and dismembered a young couple when they were on a yacht trip in 1981. Now, the police are very interested in this story, of course, but unfortunately, it cannot be corroborated, and even Cindy's sister, who was also on that trip, says that nothing like that ever happened. Clearly, Cindy is struggling with something internally, but nobody knows what it is. And then, in the summer of 1985, Cindy attempts to take her own life by overdosing on painkillers. She survives, and after she is released from the hospital, she promises to go stay with her brother for a bit so that he can keep an eye on her. But instead, she returns to her home. This is kind of strange to me. In my opinion, if you're struggling so badly with what's going on in your life, with all of this harassment and these violent physical attacks, why would you want to return to the place where people are watching you and want to harm you? But she did. And as you can imagine, the stalking continued. She alleged to have received more phone calls, more nasty letters, and even reported that she was delivered a large makeup case full of rotten meat. And then someone attempted to set her home on fire. Actually, this would be the last of three arson attempts on her home, or at least that's initially what it looked like. She had her best friend and her best friend's husband move in with her because she was just too afraid to live alone. One evening, she ran into the couple's room during the middle of the night, screaming about some sounds that she had heard. When the friend's husband went downstairs to investigate the sounds, he discovered that the basement of the home was completely on fire. Thankfully, they were able to call the fire department in time and have the flames extinguished, and an extensive investigation was launched. I mean, a fire is a very serious escalation. But when authorities took a closer look, they discovered that it was very likely the fire had been started from inside the home. Cindy would receive an insurance payout nonetheless. But investigators were sure that someone would have had to break into the home to set it, either by going through the doors, which were locked, like heavy-duty locks, or through the window, and there was no evidence of anyone climbing through the windows. This was kind of the turning point where the police really began to believe that Cindy James was doing this all to herself. They didn't believe that there was a stalker at all. They believed that she had staged everything because she was suffering from a break from reality. This time, they had her admitted to a psychiatric facility for further examination where she would spend seven weeks. According to the series Unsolved Mysteries, while in treatment, Cindy would write in her journal the following, quote, I still feel suicide is my best option in an unbearable situation, 
and as soon as I get out of here, I will carry out my plan. Additionally, the doctors who treated her in the institution also wrote in their reports that they believed she was sending herself those letters and attacking herself and setting the fires in her home. When she's released from the psychiatric institution, she moves to the Vancouver suburb of Richmond. Now it's December of 1985 and it's freezing outside. While on her lunch break at work, Cindy would be found wandering around the area with no jacket or shoes on. She was completely disoriented and she had a black nylon stocking tied around her neck, that signature stocking. Again, there is a needle mark on her arm and the police believe that she's faking it. No drugs were found in her system. This time they give her an ultimatum. Either she agrees to go into therapy or they will press criminal charges for wasting their time. Cindy agrees to continue her therapy treatment, though at that time, she does not admit that she is behind all of the harassment. She still claims that someone is stalking her, attacking her, harassing her. Now, in the beginning, when all of this started happening, the majority of people who knew Cindy completely believed that what she was saying was true, that someone was stalking her and threatening her and even attacking her. But now, most people believed that she was mentally unwell and actually harming herself. Her friends began to distance themselves from her, and the police pretty much stopped taking any reports. If she is lying about what has happened, she has wasted an inconceivable amount of police resources. I think by now you're getting the sense that this is a cycle. Everything is basically repeated. So the arson continues. The letters continue, and the alleged attacks continue. Only a handful of Cindy's network actually believes and supports her that this is happening. So she begins to get really desperate. She begins to point fingers at her husband, Roy, who she previously had always said was innocent. She is unfortunately let go from her job, and again, she becomes so depressed that she is put on suicide watch. The fear of her doctors is that she will attempt to take her own life in a way that looks like a murder and then try to blame it on her husband. She's admitted to the hospital for more treatment and this time it does appear that she seems to get better, a little better at least. This time when she's released from the hospital, she decides to change her name to Cindy James, where previously it was that of her husband's last name. She buys a new home to move into and for a while, the attacks seem to stop, or she has finally given up on the gig, whatever you think. Cindy is doing so well that she even finds a new job that she loves, working as a nurse at the Richmond General Hospital. In May of 1989, Cindy decides to take a five-day vacation from her job. Overall, things seem to be quieter than in previous years, though she still has reported an incident here or there. The frequency of the harassment does seem to have slowed way down. On May 26th, she runs around town doing a few errands, including cashing a check and buying a birthday present for a friend's child. Then she went to the beauty salon to get a makeover, and she stopped at the grocery store to pick a couple of things up. She had plans that evening to have some of her friends over to play cards, but she wouldn't make it to her own card game. That evening, when her friends dropped by, Cindy isn't home, and her car isn't in the driveway. 
No one knew where she was, and this was a time before phones, so it made it all that more difficult to get a hold of her. Eventually, her abandoned car is discovered in the parking lot of that grocery store that she had visited. There is blood on the driver's side door. Her purse and her wallet, along with her groceries and that birthday present that she had bought, they are all left behind in the backseat of the car, but Cindy is nowhere to be seen. It would be almost two weeks before Cindy is found. Her body would be discovered by a maintenance worker who found her lying on the ground near an abandoned house, about a mile from where her car was found. She was fully clothed and her hands and feet were bound behind her back with a rope. The man who discovered her would say, quote, Her face was completely black. I think it had been punched in. A cord was wrapped around one ankle and a wrist. An autopsy would once again find fresh needle marks in her arm, only this time they would also discover morphine and other drugs in her system. Her cause of death was determined to be an overdose, and as a result of a quote, unknown event. If you're not getting the visual here, she was found lying on her side with her feet tied together and tucked under her bottom. Then she had her hands also tied behind her back. It would be a difficult position for someone to put themselves in, though not totally impossible. Police, right off the bat, they believed it to be a suicide. They had an expert witness who determined that the drugs would have taken about 15 minutes to finally kick in, and Cindy would have had her hands and feet tied like that within three to five minutes. So realistically, she could have bound herself before the overdose happened. But also remember, her face was very battered and bruised, according to the man who found her. Her close friends and family were not convinced that this was a suicide. To them, this made it abundantly clear that Cindy was telling the truth the entire time. That she had not been attacking herself. Someone else was out to get her and ultimately killed her. Unfortunately, this is one of those cases where the police really just honed in on suicide, and so there wasn't a thorough homicide investigation done. And I guess I can understand why they would feel this way. This is a woman who they believe has been setting up these situations for years. And her psychiatric team was already aware that she was at risk of doing this to herself in one final attempt to get the police to listen to her. But again, her friends and family, they had questions. Like, why did she do this to herself if she had big plans for that day? Things had been going really well for her. She had a great job. She had just cashed her paycheck. She had just picked up groceries, a birthday present, and she had even had a makeover. Would she really go through all of that trouble if she had just planned to take her own life? And would she really be able to tie herself up, both her hands and her feet, if she had that many drugs in her system? We don't know. This happened in the 80s and we still don't know. Despite all of the police reports that Cindy filed over the years, all of the witnesses who saw her bound, beaten, and unconscious, the police ruled it a suicide and so there wasn't really an investigation done. Could Cindy have done this to herself? Sure, maybe. Was someone stalking Cindy for all of those years until they finally went through with their plan to kill her? Possibly. That's exactly what her family believes, that there is a killer walking free today. Unfortunately, no one, including Cindy's husband, Ron, has ever been named a suspect, and we will likely never know the truth of this story. 
But as always, I'm here to present the details and I would love to hear what you think. Do you think that this was a real stalker? Or did the stalker live inside Cindy's head? If you get what I'm saying. That's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper, or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, and that's all one word. If you'd like more ad-free bonus content, make sure you check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Serial Napper. Until next time, sleep tight, and don't look under the bed. Bye.